the good song service this morning and trust that you'll continue to pray for our feeble efforts to speak to you in the name of our loving Savior. If you have your Bibles with you, please open them this morning to the 26th chapter of the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 26 parallels some of the events that we find in the 14th chapter of Mark and the 22nd chapter of the Gospel of Luke. The title of our study this morning is The Last Supper. I believe it's very important for God's people to ever remember the significance involved in the implementing of the Last Supper, the ordinance of communion as the Lord committed it to His church in His own personal ministry. Sometimes we fail to recognize its importance even though we look forward to it from time to time, we fail to see its significance within its context. We need to understand more about the context in which this supper came to be a reality in the New Testament church. We're going to see this morning the context of the Last Supper, the character of the Last Supper, the covenant relationship that is symbolized in the Last Supper, and then, of course, its continuance. But I want to back up into our study of Matthew chapter 26, and I, rem I want to remind us of, of the context. Remember Christ, um, in the 17th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, Christ is riding into the city of Jerusalem. We find, I mean, uh, the 21st chapter, we find Him riding victoriously as the announced King, um, that was promised in the Old Testament and, and now this is going to begin what we refer to as the Passion Week of Christ. This is the last seven days that Christ would be in the earth. And in His, uh, in his regal uh, authority and His glory, He is fulfilling all of the scriptures that relate to the Messiah. And, and you, you, you witness the outbreak of praise the outbreak of adoration, Hosanna, uh, Lord in the highest, um, the worship that he received on that occasion. And of course, in the context of his appearing, we need to remember several things. And we're going to find most of them in one chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 26. And it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings. Now, what sayings is he talking about? You see, sometimes we read over that too quickly. In Matthew, right? In Matthew 24 and 25, that's referring to the Olivet Discourse. Well, what's the Olivet Discourse about? It's the answering of a, a very significant question. Actually, three questions. When they were sitting on the Mount of Olives looking over the Temple Mount... Jesus said something that astonished the disciples. He said, you see all these stones? There's not going to be one stone left upon another. That blew them away. How can that be? This is the house of God where God's name is. How can that happen? And Jesus began his discourse by answering three questions. When shall these things be? What shall be the sign of thy coming? And when shall be the end of the world or the end of the age? 
the, these three questions are answered in the Olivet Discourse. And it's significant to remember that. In the context of that uh, new information, after these things, Jesus, when Jesus had finished these sayings, He said unto His disciples, Ye know that after two days is the feast of the Passover, and the Son of Man is to be betrayed and crucified. This again points us to the context. Because the context is that it is the season of the Passover. The Passover feast that, that caused the, the people of Israel to remember how that God by a mighty hand delivered them out of Egyptian bondage 1,500 years before. Fifteen long centuries the children of Israel had observed the feast of the Passover. And you remember what that feast is about, right? You remember what the Passover is about. Um, in the night in which Israel was taken out of Egyptian bondage, God commanded them to take the blood of a lamb. And to take that blood and put it upon the side posts and the lintel of the doorways of their habitation. And when the death angel would come throughout the land of Egypt, it would see the blood and pass over that house. Hence it's called the Passover. And the Passover would begin the ecclesiastical year of the nation of Israel. So it was something that was intended to be observed and remembered year by year. And through the centuries, the high priest would take the blood of a lamb and he would go inside the Holy of Holies and sprinkle that mercy seat seven times. And this, brothers and sisters, is a wonderful picture of the sacrificial lamb, uh, Jesus Christ, that came into the world, that through his shed blood, death, eternal death, and eternal separation from God would be forever removed from his elect family. See, that death would pass over us and not touch us for eternity. Jesus Christ, remember when John the Baptist would identify Jesus Christ in John chapter 1, verse 29, he would say, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. He identified him as the Lamb, the Passover Lamb. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7 said that Jesus Christ is our Passover. So all of this is pointing to the work that Jesus Christ actually came to do in His own uh, person uh, so long ago. And we're rejoicing in that by remembering it. We're remembering it this morning. This is a very important contextual argument that we have to remember as we come to this table. It was the time of the Passover, but it was also a season of darkness, the darkness of conspiracy. Listen to this in verse 3. Then assembled together the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the people. Now, when you read those three titles together, always remember that he's talking about the Sanhedrin court. He's talking about the high court of Judaism in the day of Christ. Here they're assembled. Uh, Sunhedrion, they are the assembled rulers of Israel. They assembled themselves together um, unto the palace of the high priest who's, who was called Caiaphas. Now remember the context here. Caiaphas is uh, going to serve as high priest for 18 years, the longest 
reigning high priest in modern times in the day of Christ. And the reason it was so was because he was a crook. The reason it was so is because he was an ally of Rome and an ally of the Herodian class, the ruling class of Judah, the wealthy class of Judah. And he made a lot of money by the sale of doves and lambs and cow, cattle for sacrifice. So he would be very upset with this Savior that would go in and overturn the tables of those that changed money and those that were robbing poor people in the, uh, in the uh, increased price of these sacrifices that they were offering. It would definitely affect his pocketbook. So he's got a motive to despise Jesus Christ. And I want you to note this in your notes this morning. Every time Caiaphas is mentioned in the Bible, he's always presented as an enemy of Jesus Christ. So here's the context. It's not a very lovely picture, is it? it it's getting dark. Uh, the darkness of conspiracy. They're getting together and they're consulting, verse 4, and consulted that they might take Jesus by subtility and kill Him. I want you to underline the word take there. That word take is found in three different uh, Greek New Testament words. And this particular word that is translated take has a very significant meaning. Because he's not uh, talking about taking someone passively. Like you take the hand of a person to go across a road. Or you take the hand of someone uh, to lead them to a dinner table. Um, the word take here reminds me of when I was a little boy and my daddy was preaching the gospel. And I was a little boy and he made me sit on the front row one time because mama was sick that Sunday. And uh, <clears throat> he got down out of the pulpit to take his noisy, uh, rambunctious son outside to change his attitude. I remember my dad taking me outside, you see. And then he got up in the pulpit and just finished preaching his discourse. Anytime I see that particular word take, I think of that memory. Because it means to lay hold upon suddenly, forcefully, in order to remove. That's this word. It's a specific word, and it has that connotation in it. They're, they're, they're getting together. They're conspiring to take Jesus away. That they might kill him. And notice the word by subtility. By deception. By craft. By trickery. By ensnaring or stealth. They want to do this secretly. So as not to alarm the great crowd that was in Jerusalem at the time of Passover. Which most commentators will tell us is over two million. Two million people at this particular time of feasting. In verse 5... But they said, not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar among the people. In other words, they didn't want an uncontrollable riot over the taking of Jesus from the midst of the people. Because many of those people had been uh, or experienced healing. Had experienced miracles. And claimed that Jesus had to be the Messiah. See, they were in a tenuous position here. So they're doing their conspiring behind closed doors, seeing how they might do this. And what's interesting to me is 
the very thing that they stated, that this is not the right time to take and kill Jesus, is the very time that God himself decreed that Christ would die. Isn't that interesting? You see, the counsel of God is what will stand. The counsel of men is fickle. The counsel of men is um, inferior to the decree and power of God. Now keep that context in mind. So it's the context of, of the Passover. It's the context of the darkness of conspiracy. But then we pass from that scene to another scene. And it's in this chapter on purpose. That's why I want to include it in our study this morning. Now we see Jesus as an honored guest. Listen to this in verse 6. Now when Jesus was in Bethany, now after he had finished his discourse in the Mount of Olives, he went to the little village of Bethany. Do you remember who lives in Bethany? You remember? From John chapter 11, remember Lazarus? Did anything significant happen in the life and experience of Lazarus? Now this means yes, this means no. Yeah. Lazarus died. And Jesus raised him from the dead. Now keep that in mind. He's in Bethany. But Jesus did many miracles in Bethany. And one of those was assuredly the healing of this leper named Simon. And Simon is going to show his gratitude by inviting Jesus to his house for a festive supper. Now when Jesus was in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, there came unto him a woman having an alabaster box of very precious ointment and poured it on his head as he set it meat. Now John chapter 12 verse 3 identifies this woman as Mary, the sister of Lazarus. You know what she's doing? She's worshiping Christ. You know what she's doing? She's saying, thank you for healing my brother, for raising him from the dead. You know what she's doing? She's worshiping him as the acknowledged Messiah. And this is all happening in this Passion Week. He is the guest of honor. But when his disciples saw it, verse 8, when his disciples saw it, they had indignation, saying, To what purpose is this waste? For this ointment might have been sold for much and given to the poor. When Jesus understood it, he said unto them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she hath wrought a good work upon me. For ye have the poor always with you, but me ye have not always. For in that she hath poured this ointment on my body. She did it for my burial. Now stop right there. What's happening in this context? What's happening in this context is there's a preparation for the death of Christ. That's why I believe it's in Matthew chapter 26. This story is a part of the Last Supper. The ointment that was poured upon the head of Jesus Christ, and John tells us also the feet. That ointment would run down into that garment that Jesus was wearing on that very occasion. That garment, brothers and sisters, that that Jesus would be wearing when that very night he would be arrested and taken to the court of Caiaphas and found a blasphemer and beaten and mocked and, uh, and then taken to Pilate and his soldiers would again mock and beat him. And as they would beat, that, beat, the, beat him 
and that garment would being upon him, the smell of that ointment would rise from the fabric of that cloth, sweetening, as it were, the torturous treatment that our Savior was enduring. This is a part of the context of the Last Supper. Verse 13, Verily I say unto you, Wheresoever this gospel shall be preached in the whole world, there shall also this, that this woman hath done, be told for a memorial of her, a memorial of her faith, a memorial of her love for the Lord Jesus and devotion to Him. And did you know 2,000 years later, you're hearing about her memorial. Wherever the gospel is being preached, you'll hear about Mary. Now there's two things that I want to point out here. One thing is, Jesus elevated the role of women in the church. Did you know that? Jesus elevated the significance of women in the church. Remember, women in the day of Jesus Christ were like chattel. They weren't even educated. They weren't taught to read. Many of them weren't taught to read. Because all they were good for was marrying and having children. And of course, keeping the house and, and all of those type of tasks. But Jesus elevated the role of women to be worshipers. Don't ever forget that. Another thing I notice is that even though this gift, this expensive gift, was given to Jesus Christ, it was thought to be insignificant and of little value to men, to people, to even the disciples. Yet before God, it was a great, great offering. Always remember that your offering, it makes no difference what men say about your offerings. It makes no difference what uh, people think about your gifts or your sacrifices. Brothers and sisters, what counts is what God thinks about them. What we're here today is to honor God, not to please men, but to honor God. And it's of great value in the eyes of the living God. I want you to see the context. Jesus was an honored guest in this house in Bethany. But then we pass from his honored his honor being an honored guest to the shadow of betrayal. Here's your context. Because in verse 14, then one of the 12 called Judas Iscariot went unto the chief priests and said unto them, "What will you give me?" What matters is what I get out of it. Do you see the covetousness in this? What do I get out of it? What, what will you give me if I deliver him to you? And they, and they covenanted with him for 30 pieces of silver. Why 30 pieces of silver? The answer is found in Exodus 21 verse 32. Because that's the price of a male slave. We'll give you the We'll give you the price of a slave. That's, that's how they esteemed Christ. They looked upon Christ as a mere man. And, you know, surely he's worth the price of a slave. That's where the 30 pieces of silver came from. And from that time, I want you to notice verse 16. And from that time he sought opportunity to betray him. Here is the shadow of betrayal. Watch as this develops. 
Watch as this develops. In verse 17, now the first day of the feast, this is uh, the feast of unleavened bread or the feast of the Passover season. The disciples came to Jesus saying unto him, where wilt thou that we prepare thee for thee to eat the Passover? In other words, it's going to take some preparation. There's not only physical preparation as you see here this morning with the table and the chairs and the towels and basins. That's, that's, that's important. But there's something far more important than that, brothers and sisters. Have we prepared our hearts? Have we prepared our hearts to sit at the Lord's table? Where will you, Lord Jesus, that we go and prepare for the Passover? In verse 18, and he said, go into the city to such a man and say unto him, the master saith, my time is at hand. Now, I want you to underscore that expression because all the way through the New Testament uh, uh, Gospels, you find Jesus telling them, it's not my time. My time is not yet. My time is not yet. He would, he would uh, 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 avoid or escape a certain um, danger because his time was not yet. He wouldn't go into the land of the Judeans uh, because his time was not yet. All, of, all the way through, you see, the time is not yet, but now the time has come. What time is that? The time of redemption. The time for me to fulfill all that the Father requires to save His people from their sins. To rescue you and I from an eternal banishment away from God. The time has now come. And I will keep the Passover at thy house with my disciples. Now, I want you to just take this thought home with you this morning. Notice that Jesus said, I will take this Passover with you. As we gather together for this important uh, 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 observance of the Lord's table, we need to be mindful that Jesus is here with us. He is going to be symbolized by the bread and the wine, certainly. But Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, is is with us as we participate in this uh, important ordinance. You see, there's a lot of people that don't recognize the importance of the communion table. And they'll do everything they can to avoid sitting at it. But my friends, they do this to their own destruction. Now, Jesus is with us here. Uh, I will keep the Passover at thy house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had appointed unto them. One of the few times we find them obeying him. (laughs) And they made ready the Passover. And I hope that we have made our hearts ready this morning as well. Now, when the even was come... He sat down with the twelve. Now I want you to notice that Judas is right here with them. He sat down or reclined as it is their uh, custom in Eastern culture. Because the table is low. Sometimes it's even hung from the ceiling. And, and they have like uh, uh, sleeping bags rolled out with pillows where they rest their left arm and they eat with the right hand. They, they're rested, they're reclining at this table as it were. In verse 21, And as they did eat, he said, Verily I say unto you, that you, one of you shall betray me. 
Now we are passing through this shadow of certain betrayal. This is betrayal, brothers and sisters. Oh, it, it grieves us, doesn't it? Uh, to think about someone that had witnessed the miracles of Jesus. Someone that had gone with Him day and night into all of His ministry. And someone that was passing himself off as a loving disciple. And yet in his heart, he despised him. He despised the Savior. The Savior of sinners. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. And began every one of them to say unto him, Lord, is it I? Now, Matthew puts this in here. Mark and Luke does not. Matthew says every one of them asked that question, including Judas. Every one of them asked that question. If you're taking notes, I want you to put one note to the side here. And this is what we learn from the observance of the Passover feast by Jews even today. I had the privilege of doing a, a job for a Jewish family recently, or uh, last year actually, last year. And, 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 and I asked a lot of questions, especially about the Passover. And, uh, and I noticed that at his Passover table he had four cups. And that's exactly the way they observed it in the first century. There's four cups on that table. And as they eat, as they begin to eat the Passover feast, they're going to take the first cup. And the first cup is, is more like um, a refreshment cup. It's something that they're eating with the pita. They're eating with the uh, unleavened bread. And uh, they're relaxed. And, and uh, they're refreshing their physical bodies with the first cup. And, that's when, and this is where they're drinking the first cup right here in, in verse 21. They did eat. And then they begin to say, Lord, is it I? In verse 23, now watch this. Here's going to be the second cup. And he answered and said, He that dippeth his hand with me in the dish, the same shall betray me. Now we read that and we wonder, what in the world is this talking about? Well, my Jewish friend uh, told me that um, at the second cup, you take, um, you take a dish of bitter herbs. Of bitter herbs and uh, nuts. And you dip the pita, you, di you dip the unleavened bread into the dish, and you eat the bitter herb first uh, to, remind, uh, to remind them of the bitterness of their slavery in Egypt. It comes right out of the book of Leviticus. It's, it's, it's right out of God's instruction book. And when they take that bitter herb, they drink of the second cup. The second cup is a cup of memorial. It, it's a cup of memorial. And as they're drinking this second cup, they're going back to Exodus chapter 12 and reading it from the, from the scroll. They're reading the story of their deliverance from Egypt. I thought that was interesting. And, and I can kind of visualize that context in our study this morning. In verse 23, he answered and said, He that dippeth his hand into the dish, 
uh, this dish of bitter herbs, the same shall betray me. The Son of Man, verse 24, watch this. The Son of Man goeth as it is written unto him. But woe unto, unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been better for that man if he had not been born. Now somebody says, well, surely God would find a way to save a man like Judas. Well, brothers and sisters, I'm sorry. He can say he could save a man like Judas. And he's even saved worse. But upon the authority of God's word, I'm telling you that Judas was not a chosen disciple. He was not a part of the family of God. He was a plant by Satan himself. In fact, I have a verse in the scripture that says Satan actually took over Judas. He actually inhabited him. He possessed him. Can I say this? I believe God's people can be oppressed by the devil. But God's people cannot be possessed by the devil. Judas was possessed by the devil himself. That's why he says it had been better that he had not been born. Ooh. Verse 25, Then Judas, which betrayed him, answered and said, Master, is it I? Notice Matthew is the only one that points this out. And he said unto him, Thou hast said. You've said it. Somebody says, Well, Brother Jeff, I don't understand. Here they are at the same table, and they're talking to one another. How is it, how is it that everybody didn't know that it was Judas when Jesus said, Yeah, you're the one. Well, the way they were configured around that table, uh, John, the Apostle John, was on the right side, the right hand of Jesus. Because remember, John said that he leaned on the Master's breast. He was on the right side. Judas was on the left. And the conversation between Judas and Jesus would not have been heard necessarily by those around them. So it's not hard for me to imagine they didn't hear Jesus say, You have said. It is the shadow of betrayal. We go from that to the symbolism of the supper. And we'll hear more about that in a little bit. But watch this. In this context, watch this. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, this unleavened bread, and blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. This, the, the term this is in the neuter. It doesn't mean that the bread is literally the body of Christ, but the bread is a picture or a symbol or an emblem of what the body of Christ is would accomplish he says he says i want you to take this eat it embrace it and then he took the cup this is the third cup this is the cup of thanksgiving this is the eucharist he takes the cup of blessing this is the third cup it is the cup of blessing and by the way brothers and sisters it's amazing to me it's just amazing to my mind my Jewish friend showed me some of this pita bread that's unleavened, and it's a round patty. And you know what they do to that bread? To this day, they score it. They score it two ways, and then they take a, 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 a pick, and they put holes between the squares. And they break it, and they're eating a piece of bread 
that's striped and pierced. Brothers and sisters, I'm telling you, that's significant. Because our Savior was striped and pierced for sin. Jesus says, He takes that bread, and in my mind, I'm, I'm imagining it's got the stripes and the pierce that my Jewish friend said it always has had. And Jesus is identifying Himself with that bread. Because just a few hours after this last supper, Jesus is going to be whipped beyond recognition. He's not even going to look like a man. His beard is going to be plucked from his face. His teeth are going to be broken. Unimaginable suffering. His hands and his feet are going to be pierced. They're going to be nailed to a Roman cross. Do you see? He says, this is my body, which is broken for you. Oh, yes. Peter says, Lord, I don't understand. And Jesus says, I know you don't understand now, but shortly after, you're, you're going to understand more after some things happen. After I go to the cross, after I go to the grave, after I'm raised again. Then, Peter, you're going to remember this. And you're going to understand. This is my body, which is broken, not for my sin, but for yours. Hallelujah. Then he says, for this, uh, then he says in verse 27, here, here's the third cup. And, and, and he took the cup and gave thanks and gave, gave thanks. He blessed and gave, uh, gave it to them and said, drink ye all of it. For this is my blood of the new covenant of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Brothers and sisters, do you, do you understand what he's doing? He's taking that Eucharist, that cup of, of blessing, and he's, uh, he's, changing, he's changing the message that that cup represents. He's changing the message. This cup that reminded the children of Israel for centuries of the blood of the Lamb, back over in Exodus chapter 12, that was shed so that the death angel would pass over them, this cup now represents my blood, which is shed for you. He's changing the covenant. Uh, he's changing the terms of the covenant. Listen to me carefully. I know this gets a little deep here, but bear with me. The covenant of the law. You understand what I'm saying? The Old Testament covenant. That's why we call it the Old Testament. The Old Covenant is a covenant of works. It's a covenant of blessing upon those who obey and cursing those who disobey. That's what it is. But Jesus ushered in the terms of a new covenant, a new basis for our relationship with God that is not based upon my works. It's not based upon my good deeds. It's not based upon, certainly not upon my worthiness. But it is based upon His. It's based upon the reality and the legal, uh, uh, the legal uh, 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 vision of His blood. In other words, let me put it this way. When God the Father looks upon you and me, He's not looking upon you and I 
through the blood of Moses. He's not looking on you and I through the blood sacrifices of all those animals through the centuries. He's not. He's looking upon you and I through the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's where we have access. That's where we have acceptance with the Father. Let me, let me emphasize that point by reminding you of some things. Remember in the Old Covenant, there is a distance between the worshiper and God. Always, all the way through. When even Moses, when he was uh, 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 introduced to Jehovah at the burning bush, he, God said, take the shoes from off your feet, Moses. Because the ground that you stand on is holy ground. You stay separate from me, lest you be consumed. When they came to Mount Sinai, what did God command Moses to do? To, to circle around Mount Sinai, to make a border around it, lest one of the children of Israel would break through. And the Lord said, I'll kill him dead. If he even touches this mountain. Separation. Separation. Distance between the worshiper and, and the God of heaven. Because of God's disdain for sin. God's hatred of iniquity. Even one iniquity, even one small blemish in the heart and soul of man would forever separate him from this holy God. You've got to understand this. So God says, okay, you can worship me, but you can worship me at a distance. But brothers and sisters, when Jesus Christ died upon the tree of the cross and He said, it is finished, when He accomplished the will of His the perfect will of His Father in heaven. And He said, It is finished. What happened to the veil on the temple? Do you, can you say? It went top to bottom. Not bottom to top. Top to bottom. And that was no easy task because it's four inches thick. It's the width of a man's hand. All of these threads are bound together. Can you imagine? All of these threads are bound together in this huge curtain that's 30 feet tall. No man, it would, it's impossible for a man to even begin to rip such a curtain. But this curtain was rent top to bottom, children. And what that represented was access. The worshiper no longer has to stay apart and distant. Now we have access to God through His Son, Jesus Christ. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that wonderful? So Jesus is saying, this is the blood of my new covenant. This is what I've done for you that you could never do for yourself. Hallelujah. I want you to see the context of this supper. Oh, he's telling us some good news. He says, this is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now, brothers and sisters, stop right here and bear with me a few minutes. That's a significant statement that could only be understood in the context of a Jewish wedding. A Jewish wedding is under consideration with that statement. Let me explain. When a young man would find a woman that he wanted to be his bride, he would go to his father. 
And by the way, this is still practiced in Orthodox Jewish communities. And my friend, Brother Kevin knows him in, in Memphis. He, he explained all of this to me too. Uh, uh, the father is the one that approves the girl in an Orthodox Jewish uh, fa- uh, community. He, he has to approve the woman that's chosen. A lot depends on the father. Now bear with me. This is really good. This is really good. Just hang on, hang on. So the father has to approve the young lady. So the father in the Jewish community, in the day of Christ, the father with the son would go and present himself to the father of the woman. And the father of the woman, I mean uh, the father of the man, would write a covenant. He, he would write an agreement between the two fathers concerning the son and his chosen bride. This is rich to me. And he would read it out loud in the presence of many witnesses. He would read this covenant. And if the chosen woman agreed with the covenant, then the father would pay a dowry. A dowry for the bride. He would pay the price. The father of the groom would pay the price for the bride. Now watch this. Then they would take a cup. And they would fill it with wine. And the, the, the groom would take the cup present it to the, the, the espoused wife and she would have the choice. She would have the right to either accept the cup or reject it. And if she accepted the cup and drank of the cup and gave it back into the hand of the young man and then the man would be able to drink of the cup you followed me? It was an agreement that they were in covenant relationship and that's called a spousal, what we call engagement. That would be the engagement between the young man and the young woman. Now follow this. That cup has a very significant purpose. The cup would then be given into the hand of the father and the father would keep that cup himself in a separated from the son that made the proposal. Then the young man would do something. He would go to his father's house and he would build a room onto his father's house. And it might take as long as a year for him to complete the room and to make sure that he had the furniture necessary and everything necessary to go get his bride. But even then... Even then, the young man was dependent upon the father as to the time of the marriage. He had to wait for the will of the father. And one day, the father would bring the cup. And he'd put it in the hand of the son. And he'd say, son, go get the bride. Go get her. 
the time has come. Everything's ready. Remember what Jesus said in John 14, 1, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. For in my Father's house there are many mansions. I go to what? What? I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will what? Return and receive you unto myself. Why? That where I am, there ye may be also. When Jesus says, I'm not going to drink of this cup anymore. I'm going to take this cup and put it in my Father's hand. And one day my Father's going to give me that cup. And He's going to say, go get the bride. And I believe that's what Revelation is all about. The book of Revelation is the second coming of Jesus Christ to get His bride. And there's a feast, there's a marriage supper, a coming. And brothers and sisters, all of the elect family, all the bride of Jesus Christ is going to be there. And we're ever going to be with the Lord in that perfect habitation that He's prepared for us based on His covenant, not ours. Is that good to you this morning? Does that mean something to you? It does to me. I'm longing for that day to come. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Excuse me. You see, I believe that that's what that fourth cup is about. My Jewish friend told me, he, he said this, he says, oh, we never, we never drink of that cup. He, he said that fourth cup is for the Messiah. And we never touch that cup, Brother Jeff, or Mr. Harris. We never cut that, we, we never touch that fourth cup. Oh, how I wanted to tell him. I know someone that drank that cup. I know the Messiah. Well, I did tell him. Thank God I, I got the opportunity to tell him, he, and I've never talked to him again. But, Brother Nathan, I told him I know who drank that cup. And that cup today is in the hand of the Father. And one day he'll give it to the Son and say, Go get your bride. Go get her. It's time. You see, the character, that's the context. The character, the terms of the new covenant, it's fulfillment of prophecy. How many times? Does Matthew say, so that the scripture might be fulfilled, so that the scripture might be fulfilled, so, so that the scripture might be fulfilled? Jesus Christ fulfilled 300 scriptures in his personal ministry. 300. Oh, I want you to see the character of this supper when Jesus Christ said, This is the final supper, this is the last supper, when he was. Declaring that he, he was saying that he accomplished everything that his father sent him to do. It was now, all he had to do now was go to the cross. That's all he had to do. So here he's, he's preparing his servants for that uh, reality. So Christ, here, here's the character of that supper. Uh, it's fulfillment of prophecy. It's Christ's body that would be broken for us. And His blood that would be shed for our redemption. Our forever redemption, you see. 
And then thirdly, lastly this morning, it's a continuance. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, remember they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, right? And, and, uh, and, uh, and uh, fellowship. And the breaking of bread and prayers. See, see, this is something that the church is supposed to continue to observe. And remember until Jesus comes again. And this, and this morning when you take that cup and you drink it, you drink that cup, I want you to think about the cup in the Father's hand. I want you to think about a time when the Savior that died for us and rose again for our justification will come again and take us home. I want, I want you to remember that when you're drinking that cup this morning. And lastly, it's the continuance. It's a, it's a call to remembrance of the cost of our redemption. Oh, brothers and sisters, salvation is free, but it's not without cost. It cost Jesus his life, his blood. In this Last Supper, we see a glimpse of the glory of his resurrection. How that through his death, burial, and resurrection, we have access to the Father. And then we rejoice in the promise of his second coming. Oh, may that be yours to enjoy today. May you rest in that. Oh, children of God, I know many of you have struggles. You're just like me. You've got your conflicts. You, you, you've got your struggles. You, you've got your trials, your, your, your tribulations. All, I, I, I don't know any family that's not been impacted by some kind of a trial. Because that's where we live in this broken world. But all this morning... If I could just have you to look above them. Look above these sufferings and struggles. To see the beauty and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And how he manifested a portion of that glory in the Last Supper. God bless you. Thank you. Mm.